If you will try it out personally, I believe that you will decide that God knows more about time than President Wilson does. C.W. Brown, Kansas City Letter to the Editor of Scientific American on the Subject of Daylight Savings Time Published October 1919 None of this, it goes without saying, took place without considerable psychological and social resistance. In a timekeeping society, we are all linked by habit and mindset to the standard of measurement, which is one reason why political authority has always sought to put its stamp thereon. And there are always some who resist chronometric changes as though they were violations of identity and self-esteem. Daylight Saving provides a fascinating case study in this interplay and discord of authority and habit. Summertime made its first appearance in a number of countries in the First World War. The aim was to save on fuel and make possible longer working hours while leaving room for leisure evenings. But Daylight Savings was never a unanimous success, reviving concerns for man's hubris in tinkering with nature. David Landis, Revolution in Time, Clocks and the Making of the Modern World. This is CJ, Anarchy's smooth operator, your renaissance man for this new dark age, here with episode 198 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Fuck Daylight Savings. The DHP versus DST. Now this episode is not a part of the Wilson series proper, but as you already got some glimmering from the quote I read at the beginning of the show, it definitely does tie in. So anyway, if all goes according to plan, if you're subscribed to this podcast in some fashion prior to me putting out this episode, then this episode will pop up in your feed, hopefully, sometime on Monday, March 9th, 2020. Now, technically, the time changed on Sunday, but that doesn't really matter that much for most people, because let's be honest, you don't really feel it till the next Monday, till the next day, unless you happen to be someone unlucky enough to have a job where you go to work on Sundays. So, if you're hearing this only a day, or at most just a couple of days after the so-called spring forward took place in 2020, then you're probably feeling it pretty viscerally right now, the effects of this time change. And all I can say is, I feel your pain. So we're going to talk about where this idea came from, how it evolved historically. We're going to talk about some of the problems with the practice of springing forward in particular. We're going to contrast this with some other aspects of the modernization of time, which have been less harmful and less controversial. And hopefully by the time I'm done, if you're not already on board, I will have made my case, A, that there should be no time change, and B, that the permanent setting should be what we call standard time. So where did this idea of seasonal time change come from? This idea that you should adjust your clocks forward part of the year and backward at another? 
Well, as many people know, perhaps the earliest proposal for something like Daylight Savings Time, or DST, I'll use those terms interchangeably for the rest of the episode, possibly the earliest record of, you know, a written source from history of someone proposing this came from none other than Ben Franklin in the 1780s when he was living in Paris, in an essay he wrote suggesting that by adjusting their clocks forward, Parisians could save on lighting costs by extending sunlight further into the evening. Now, some sources think Franklin was serious in this proposal. Others seem to think that he may have actually been sort of trolling, you know, almost sort of like a more modest, modest proposal. But regardless, whether it was meant in earnest or in jest, no one in France or in America, for that matter, was eager at the time to take Franklin up on this proposal. And for the next 130 or so years, time went on largely as it had, though increasing developments in the technology of clocks and watches and the need to standardize time more did move along. But in the early 20th century, the idea of daylight savings time, or DST, came back and was put into practice by politicians. Now, many of the terrible ideas that have been inflicted on the U.S. since the early 19th century have originated in Prussia and, after 1870, in Germany. And many of the terrible policies inflicted on the American people by the federal government since the beginning of the 20th century were put into place under the presidency of one Thomas Woodrow Wilson. Daylight Savings Time shares both of these traits. That is, it originated in Germany, and it was inflicted on the American people by the Wilson administration. And like so many things that have afflicted the world for the last hundred years or so, it all came out of World War I, which, in my opinion, is the single worst thing that's happened, at least so far, in modern world history. Not just because it was a horrific bloodbath in itself, which it was, but because it also led to a huge overall increase in statism worldwide, including such manifestations as the rise of communism, the rise of Nazism, World War II, and the complete fucking up of the entire Middle East, and many, many more terrible secondary and tertiary effects of the so-called Great War. And we might consider DST one of the many, many little evils to come out of the so-called war to end all wars. I mean, compared to you know, genocidal regimes of the 20th century and World War II, I'll admit DST is not on that level of horrificness, but nonetheless, we might consider it a minor evil to come out of World War I. The first governments to actually implement DST during the war were the two big players of the Central Powers, which, if you live in the US, UK, France, or any of their allies, they're supposed to be the bad guys, right? The two big players of the Central Powers, that being, of course, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire started using DST in April of 1916. Their main justification for this was, of course, to save fuel resources by making sunlight hang around longer into the evening. And this is going to be the primary justification for this practice ever since. Of course, to me, this always seemed ridiculous, because you'll just end up having to use more energy in the morning when it's still dark, but you have to get up and go to work or wherever, and so you're not really reducing the need for energy, you're just redistributing it to a different corner of the day. But that's the argument. In fact, the actual empirical evidence for DST saving energy on net is extremely inconsistent, to put it mildly. 
And in fact, while there are some studies that show that it leads to a decrease in energy consumption on net, most of those studies have it being quite a small decrease overall. And in fact, it seems like, especially with more recent studies, for every one study that shows it leads to a decrease in energy consumption, there are more than one that show no statistically significant impact. In other words, it's kind of a wash. And then there are also plenty more studies that show the opposite. Namely, that DST might actually lead to net increases in energy consumption. Now, getting back to the historical narrative, so the the central powers implemented DST, and as is so often the case, when some governments begin to adopt stupid and or harmful policies, boy, do lots of other governments want to jump off that bridge too. It's amazing how governments always want to imitate the worst things done by other governments and seem rarely interested in imitating the occasional good thing or beneficial thing done by other governments. Now, the adoption of DST, by the way, leads to not only very questionable energy savings, it also leads to statistically significant increases in a whole host of negative things, including, but not limited to, such things as traffic and workplace accidents. But we'll get to that kind of stuff more a bit later. Now, Woodrow Wilson, as I think I clearly showed in the last Wilson episode, was particularly prone to wanting to import many of the worst features of what we might call Eurostatism into the U.S. And once he got Team America into World War I, he happily did so with many Eurostatist ideas, including daylight savings. The law that first gave the U.S. daylight savings time for part of the year was called the Standard Time Act of 1918, also known as the Calder Act. The law was controversial among many Americans, particularly farmers. It's a common myth that persists to this day, by the way, that the practice of DST during the summer months was implemented largely to help farmers. Quite the opposite, in fact. They were some of the biggest and loudest opponents of it, because it meant that it was dark in the morning when many of them had to do a lot of their most important shit for the day. Anyway, after World War I ended, Congress passed an act to get rid of the part of the act, the Time Act, that had mandated DST for half the year. Wilson, who was a big fan of the time change practice, vetoed it. Congress passed yet another act to get rid of DST and the time change, and Wilson vetoed it a second time. But this time, the Congress mustered enough votes to heroically override Wilson's veto. And DST and the practice of biannual time changes went away in the U.S. in 1919. Sort of an early part of the return to normalcy. By the way, supposedly one of the reasons Wilson was so personally committed to having daylight savings time in the warmer months was his love of golf. One of Wilson's recent biographers has claimed that Woodrow Wilson played more golf while in office than any other president in U.S. history, and he liked being able to get in more rounds of golf before it got dark during DST. Wilson's successor, the, by comparison, great Warren Harding, who's one of my favorite presidents for a variety of reasons I won't get into here, was a strong opponent of any notion of bringing back DST. And Warren Harding, in fact, called the practice of shifting the clocks a quote-unquote deception. And it is. It is a stupid scam. 
around the world, most of the several dozen nations who had implemented DST during the Great War got rid of it when the war ended, although several states kept it a permanent thing. The next authoritarian, progressive, World War-entering president of the U.S. after Wilson, namely Franklin Delano Roosevelt, brought DST back in 1942 and called the practice wartime, which was the name of the act of Congress that implemented this. It was actually called the Wartime Act. Now, this was different from DST under Wilson during World War I in that FDR's so-called wartime was actually year-round DST, rather than for just half the year, you know, kind of like the warmer months. The main justification for this practice during the war was, again, to conserve energy resources. And for three years during World War II, the United States had year-round DST. Then this so-called wartime was ended by an act of Congress in 1945, and I've not found any mention of any presidential opposition to repealing it at the time. So, just to reiterate and emphasize, two progressive, statist, imperialist, warmonger presidents, Woodrow Wilson and FDR, had both implemented temporary DST during the respective bloodbaths into which they got the U.S., namely World War I and World War II. Wilson had wanted to make the practice of having DST for half the year a permanent thing, and had twice vetoed Congress's attempts to get rid of it. Now, like I said before, as of this recording, I'm unsure the feelings of FDR or Harry Truman, who was president by the time wartime was ended, in regard to keeping DST around either for all the year or for part of it after World War II was over. I've seen no mention of any veto or attempted a veto or anything like that, so. I'm guessing FDR and Truman must have either been on board with ending wartime or at least were neutral on the issue and just kind of deferred to Congress. But for the next 21 years after World War II, the U.S. federal government had no legal stance on the issues of time changes and DST versus standard time. Basically, states and sometimes even localities could decide on whether or not they would do the time change DST thing. Then, in 1966, perhaps not coincidentally, during the administration of another progressive statist imperialist warmonger president, that of course being Lyndon Baines Johnson, the practice of changing the time twice a year and having DST for about half the year was made permanent with a law called the Uniform Time Act of 1966, which went into effect the following year. This set up a time change regime in which the year would be almost exactly evenly split between standard time, which would run from late October through late April, and daylight savings time, which would run the rest of the year. Under this law, though, states could pass laws of their own to exempt themselves from DST. And initially, five states did so, although in the years since then, three of them have removed themselves from exemption And so, as of this recording, only Arizona and Hawaii still exempt themselves from the time change and from DST. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the American Overseas Territories, places like Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, and so on, I think they're all exempt from the time change too. So good for them as far as I'm concerned. Several acts of Congress between 1966 and 2007 have progressively increased the amount of year that DST is in effect, so that now, 
Daylight savings time runs for eight months, and standard time runs for only four months. So the thing you call standard time is only in effect for a third of the year. For a whole host of reasons, many of which I'll get into later in this episode, I very much prefer standard time. So in my opinion, by growing DST's reign from only half the year to now two-thirds of it, this has been a case of the government doing what they usually do best, which is enlarging the worse and shrinking the better. There was also a brief period, by the way, of just over a year in the mid-1970s when, during the oil crises of the time, the U.S. government instituted year-round DST. And all I can say is I'm glad I wasn't alive yet when that happened. And I'm glad it was brief. And just in the past couple years or so, noted talking point regurgitating robot asshole and sugar baron sock puppet Marco Rubio, a Florida man among Florida men, to be sure, has been pushing a law that would end the practice of time changing, which I'm for, but would do so by making DST, rather than standard time, the permanent state of affairs, something which I absolutely oppose. The name of this law to make DST permanent year-round is, I shit you not, the Sunshine Protection Act. I have no words to adequately describe this level of idiocy. So let's talk a little bit about the problems and even dangers, in some cases, of daylight savings time. Now, a lot of these center particularly around the immediate aftermath of the shift to daylight savings time, the so-called spring forward. And the spring forward into DST leads to a lot of problems, large and small. Various studies have shown that the spring forward shift leads to spikes in traffic accidents ranging from 7 to 17 percent. And studies conducted by the military have shown that the DST shift leads to increases in accidents with vehicles and planes in the military as well. Studies have shown that train accidents go up after the shift to DST. And I'll just mention here in a little more detail a few of the studies that I happened to cross while researching for this episode that I found particularly interesting. Many studies have shown the shift from DST boosts both the number and severity of vehicle crashes on the roads. A recent study from the April 2016 issue of the American Economic Journal Applied Economics found that there was a 5.6% increase in fatal crashes that lasted for six days after the transition to DST, resulting in a cost of, on average, an additional 30 deaths per year and a total social cost of several hundred million dollars. And that the one-hour loss of sleep caused by springing forward increases crashes caused by fatigue by 46%. The study also found that the switch to DST impacted vehicle accidents in two overall ways. First, by disrupting people's sleep patterns and causing them to lose sleep in the aftermath of the changeover. And secondly, throughout the time DST is in effect, daylight is shifted so that it's darker in the morning, so people do their morning commute to work or school or whatever with a lot less ambient light. So even once the person adjusts to the new time and starts to get more sleep again, there's that going on. And obviously, 
while low light always tends to lead to more vehicle crashes. This will obviously be exacerbated in the morning when people are groggy, and will be worst of all in the immediate aftermath of the spring time change when there's even more loss of sleep. A 2009 study looking at the effect of DST on workplace injuries, which was published in the Journal of Applied Psychology, found that workplace injuries increased significantly, both in number and in severity, and that this was due to the physiological effects of people's circadian rhythms being disrupted. The researchers also found that the negative effects on one's sleep caused by the spring forward to DST are much more significant than any positive effects on one's sleep caused by the fall back into standard time. So the harm, at least in regard to this, that is caused by DST is much bigger than any good that might be caused by the shift back to standard time in the fall. And specifically, the decrease in workplace accidents under the shift to standard is much, much smaller and less statistically significant than is the increase in workplace accidents after the shift to DST. Physiologically, the researchers noted, the loss of sleep caused by the shift to DST harms many parts of your brain, but it especially screws up your prefrontal cortex, which is very important to many things, including memory, the ability to multitask, and to control your emotions and focus your attention, all things which might be really important to prevent you from having a bad accident on the job. The authors even conclude that the shift to DST, quote, places employees in clear and present danger, end quote. Now, for something a little bit less severe, maybe even a bit amusing, but still a problem, particularly if you're a business owner or manager with employees working for you. A study published in 2012 in the Journal of Applied Psychology found that the lost sleep caused by the shift to DST led to a significant increase in what they refer to as cyber loafing which is basically surfing the internet, doing non-work-related things while on the job. Now, of course, people are prone to this at all times, but the researchers found that you're much more prone to do it and do more of it after the shift to DST. And they based this conclusion both on looking at some national data and on conducting some controlled experiments to see how the effects of sleep loss manifest on people's tendency to cyber loaf. Again, they believe that the main thing that's going on is that there is a negative effect on your prefrontal cortex caused by the sleep problems. And one of the things that part of your brain does is to help you with self-control and self-discipline. So if you're getting more and better sleep, your prefrontal cortex is operating more effectively, and you're going to control your impulses a little bit better, and you're going to spend more of your time exerting self-discipline and doing the things you know you're supposed to do rather than just screwing around. Other studies, as they note in this study, have shown that lack of sleep tends to make one more likely to engage in a wide variety of behaviors that are characterized by a lack of self-control, ranging from going off the wagon of your diet to even committing crimes. And as this study shows, yet another place this shows up in a statistically significant way is with a significant increase in cyber loafing on the job. They theorize that there also may be a negative impact on intrinsic motivation due to lost sleep, and they suggest future research look into other possibilities, such as potential links between lost sleep and increases in a variety of other negative workplace behaviors. 
Now, a lot of recent studies into the effects of doing the time change versus not doing it have centered on the U.S. state of Indiana. And the reason for that is because from 1966 to 2005, some, but not all, of the counties in Indiana were exempted from DST. So researchers could compare the exempted parts of the state to the DST participating parts of the state from the years before 2005, and they can also compare things in the exempted counties from the time when they were exempt versus, you know, since 2005 when they stopped being exempt from the time change. So this is a wonderful example of what researchers call a natural experiment. So various metrics have been examined using Indiana as a case study, and the short version is that the data does not speak very positively at all of DST and the time change. Now, you could say that Indiana is just one state, so perhaps its results can't map onto other states or the U.S. as a whole, and it's possible that that's true in some instances, but overall, as the researchers who've done these studies have pointed out, Indiana is in many ways a very average middle-of-the-road state across a variety of different metrics and characteristics, including latitude and climate, among other things. So it's probably not too far off from what we would expect from the U.S. as a whole in a lot of these things. So the next few studies I'm going to mention all have to do, at least in part, with looking at Indiana as this natural experiment. A study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, Psychology, and Economics in 2011 looked at the natural experiment of Indiana to see how DST affected students' performance on the SATs. And basically they found that by fucking with the kids' circadian rhythms, DST caused them physiological and psychological harm that led to statistically significant problems with cognitive function, leading to statistically significantly lower performances on the SATs. The authors concluded, quote, The nature of these SAT impinging effects may be understood as genuine cognitive damage, at least as much as related to scholastic performance, because the SAT exam is more of an aptitude than an achievement test. Starkly expressed, DST appears to cause brain damage, end quote. They calculated that the financial costs of these lower SAT scores cost Indianans on aggregate over a billion dollars in lost income, because lower SAT performance does tend to correlate in a statistically significant way with lower income later in the job world. And the researchers concluded that if you map their results onto the U.S. as a whole, it could be costing people $69 billion in lost income per year on aggregate. By the way, this study was one of my favorite ones of the ones that I read while researching for this episode, because it had a better writing style than most and even had some snarky moments. Like at the end of it, when they suggest that government officials might want to reconsider the practice of DST, quote, unless those government officials have already suffered the cognitive debilitation of too much DST, end quote. Another study published in the Review of Economics and Statistics in November 2011 looked at the Indiana natural experiment to see if DST did in fact lead to lower energy usage. They found that the exact opposite happened. 
daylight savings time actually led to a statistically significant net increase in energy consumption. The reason for this was that, while in some instances energy usage might go down for things like lighting, it went up for residential usage, particularly for climate control. In other words, the researchers found that there was a net decrease in energy usage for lighting, but that this was much more than outweighed by a net increase in energy use for heating and cooling. They estimated that DST in Indiana cost the state $9 million for the energy consumption increase caused by DST, and that the extra emissions caused by that extra energy consumption cost the state several million more dollars on top of that, you know, when basically trying to factor in the costs of increased pollution. Basically, their conclusion was, based on what they found in Indiana and how it would map onto the U.S. as a whole, that the primary rationale of DST ever since World War I, namely that it's all about energy conservation, is horseshit. If it ever was true, it's not true now. And they also pointed to a study in Australia looking at this question that found the exact same thing. DST leads to net increases in energy usage. And it makes sense. If it's daylight longer into the evening, when you're home, during the months when it's often very hot, particularly this is more pronounced, you know, the hotter the climate you live in, but even places pretty far up north have some hot days in the summer. That if it's brighter and hotter later into the evening while you're home, you're going to have to expend more energy to keep your home comfortable. I myself, during the hotter months here in Florida, will often bump my AC's thermostat up several degrees if I and the rest of my family are going to be out somewhere for the day in order to save a little bit of power. And then I'll bring it back down to a cooler setting once we all get home, especially once people start to get ready for bed, because science and my own anecdotal experience show that you sleep better when it's cooler. But if the blazing hot sun is going to be up in the sky longer, cooking my house due to DST into the evening, that means that my AC is going to have to work a lot harder in the evenings when we're home than it would if we were on standard time during the summer months. Now, that might add up to some extra bucks on my power bills during DST, and it might add to some extra wear and tear on my AC system. But if you extend that across tens of millions of homes across the southerly parts of the U.S. and even some of the northern areas that still get some real heat in the summer, add it all up together, and it adds up to a lot. And in general, DST is the least helpful and the most harmful the closer you are to the equator. It's the least helpful because the length of sunlight during the day varies a lot less than it does at latitudes further away from the equator. And it's the most harmful for the reasons that last study mentioned, occurring in Indiana. I.e., even if it does cause a slight reduction on power usage for things like lighting, although I'm personally skeptical that that's even a thing and not just a wash there, but setting that aside, it will lead to a jump in AC usage in the summer, when DST is in effect. And AC uses way more energy than lights, as any Florida man can tell you. And presumably, the effect that they found in Indiana might even be far more significant if you looked at the U.S. as a whole, given that our three most populous states currently are California, Texas, and Florida, and that another two of our ten most populous states are southerly, those being Georgia at number eight and North Carolina at number nine. So even if perhaps there was some argument that the U.S. on net might benefit 
in terms of saving energy resources under DST, you know, back during World War I or even World War II, because in the 19-teens and even 1940s, the most southerly parts of the U.S. from Florida and Georgia west through Texas to the southwest and out to Southern California, most of these areas up through World War II were pretty lightly populated. And the lion's share of the country's population density was mostly up in the urbanized, industrialized areas of the Northeast and the Great Lakes states. But those demographics are no longer the case. Five of the ten most populated states are now southern latitude ones, including all of the top three. Because after World War II, of course, you get the so-called Sunbelt boom, in which, for a variety of reasons I won't go into here, the population of states from across the southern rim of the U.S., and particularly in the case of Florida, Texas, Arizona, and California, populations of those states grow exponentially after World War II. So now, a much bigger proportion of the country's population lives along the southern rim. These are also, as everyone knows, the biggest users of air conditioning in the country, obviously. And so, daylight savings is most likely to not only not decrease energy consumption in those places, but actually to increase it. That said, even in the northerly parts of the U.S., there's still an issue, especially now that DST has been extended and goes all the way into early November. And that is, people end up having to use more energy of various types for heating, particularly in the morning, when they're getting up and ready for work and it's still pitch black. So there just ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Now, to be fair, it's true. As these studies have indicated, that the worst features of DST tend to manifest themselves most dramatically in the days right after the switch to it. And I will admit that there have been some studies that show that there are some slight increases in good things and some slight decreases in bad things that can be measured if you look at the entire period of DST as a whole. And certainly some particular groups of people with certain hobbies and leisure activities in mind, and certainly some specific business interests, find DST to be beneficial to them. But is that worth ignoring all the cost to society as a whole? And by the way, I'll mention the one thing I can think of that I'm into that I do, where DST is a positive, is fishing in the summer. Oftentimes, some of the best fishing is very early in the morning, from a little bit before sunrise until just a few hours after sunrise. And during DST, it's true that all that stuff happens by the clock later. And so, you don't have to be out there quite as early fishing to catch, you know, the earliest hours of the morning. So yeah, there's one activity that I do in that time of year that I will admit, DST impacts it positively. But there's so many other negative aspects of it that hit me directly and hit most people in some way that I'm not willing to go with DST just because it makes fishing a little bit easier in the summer for me. I'll deal with that part. I'll deal with having to get up by the clock a little bit earlier if I want to catch first light fishing. And I'll mention too that there's now a growing mountain of studies that really drills into the physiological effects of different types of time on the circadian rhythms of people and their sleep habits, and the effects of these things on a whole host of health indicators, including such things as obesity, cancer, heart disease, immune system functioning, and so on. 
And these studies, these more like scientific and medical studies, have pretty overwhelmingly concluded that the most beneficial time scheme for human beings' health, physical and mental, would be permanent, year-round, standard time, just like what we had before World War I. Rather than either doing the time change thing or having DST be permanent in year-round. Now, I didn't dig quite as deeply into these studies because it's not as much my wheelhouse. I can understand most of the social science studies data pretty well, but I quickly start to kind of lose my bearings when I delve deeply into the neuroscience and medical science and so on, you know, actual studies. But I did look at enough aggregates and summaries of a variety of studies to see that it certainly seemed that there was a pretty clear emerging consensus that from the standpoint of overall human well-being, physical and mental health, all things considered, the evidence indicates that the best option would be permanent, year-round, standard time. Now, before we want to wrap up, now, before I wrap up, I do want to mention something by way of contrast. To contrast with the origin of the idea of changing the time biannually and daylight savings and all that, I want to contrast the origin of time zones. I think an idea as stupid as daylight savings time could only have originated from the state. And history bears this out. It's always where it comes from. By contrast, the idea of having such a thing as standardized time zones, where for large regions of longitude, people's clocks are synced, that actually makes perfect sense. And at least in the case of the U.S., which was the first country to develop these things, this concept of standardized time zones didn't initially come from the government, but instead from the private sector. And the idea wasn't officially adopted by the U.S. government into law until 35 years after the private sector had already kind of set it up. Now, prior to the coming of standardized time zones, each individual town or city would set its own local time based on local noon, i.e. when the sun reached its zenith in that exact location. Now, there's a certain romantic, decentralist appeal to me, a localist appeal to me, of this idea. But obviously, it'll present problems once you get into the modern era. Because it'll mean that even towns not that far away from each other might have slightly different times. And obviously, this can create lots of problems once you start having industrialization and high-speed transport and so forth. So perhaps not surprisingly, in the U.S., it was railroad companies who were the first to start to work out an idea of standardized time zones. First in a few particular regions with a lot of railroad traffic, and then developing into the idea of dividing the U.S. into four time zones. And the U.S. was the first country in the world to have multiple standardized time zones in it. In the 1850s, railroads in New England, which had the most railroad track at the time, began to standardize time after a nasty railroad accident which was caused in part by differences in local times. Gradually, other regions started to do similar things, and various private sector theorists began to put forth different proposals for how exactly to standardize time zones for railroads in the U.S. This culminated in 1883 when the railroad industry in the U.S. and Canada adopted a plan to divide North America into four time zones, very similar overall to what we have today, though there have been some adjustments 
around the edges to where the exact borders are between different time zones since 1883. But overall, the time zones in North America in 2020 aren't that far off in most places to how they were initially devised. This 1883 proposal, by the way, came from a meteorologist named Cleveland Abbey, who at the time was heading the National Weather Service. But he also, over the course of his career, worked in academia and worked in the private sector. And my understanding is that his proposal for time zones and its adoption by the railroad companies wasn't really instigated by the government, and that Abbey wasn't acting in any official capacity when he made the proposal. Now, as I understand it, this 1883 time zone scheme in the U.S., which didn't really come from the government, was actually the first instance of this sort of thing being done in the world, because it simply wasn't a factor in most countries, particularly most countries that were already building lots of railroads. Most nation-states are compact enough that they can be put into a single time zone without any real problems. Only the U.S., Russia, and a handful of other states were large enough in an east-west dimension to really need more than one time zone for their country. Now, of course, later, after it was already kind of up and running, the U.S. government would adopt this four-zone scheme into American law, with some minor modifications to the details. The U.S. government would also be involved with the effort to harmonize time zones internationally with other governments, including the agreement that came about to base everything off the Greenwich Meridian in England. Standardized time zones, both within a nation and internationally, solve a giant host of potential real-world problems that would arise without them, particularly once you have lots of high-speed methods of travel and instant communications, as well as ever-increasing globalized business. They are a reasonable solution to real-life problems of real people. And while you could always raise objections to exactly where each time zone border should be, I don't think most people would object to the concept as such, and most people would say it's a pretty good solution to a ton of problems that would arise in modern society without time zones. And that these problems actually were starting to show up in the real world in the 19th century, once industrialization began to take place, but before the standardized time zones were created. So time zones are a pretty good solution to a bunch of real problems. By contrast, biannual time changes and DST are, in my opinion, solutions in search of a problem. And even if there are any problems that they do solve, they actually create far more problems that, in my calculus anyway, far outweigh whatever benefits there might be. So to wrap things up, I'll say that only politicians and government administrators would be stupid and arrogant enough to think that by having legislation that mandates the adjustment of clocks, you're actually altering the length of the day. And only voters would be dumb enough to go along with this idea. And not that they all did, to be fair, especially in the early days. There was a lot of popular resistance when DST was first inflicted on the U.S. during World War I. To me, this idea that just by reshuffling around, you know, where the clock is set at different times of the day, you're actually somehow changing things rather than redistributing things. This is basically the same idea as if you had a bathtub full of water, and you took a dipper, and you took a scoop of water out of one end of the tub, and then you walked over to the other end of the tub and dumped the water back in, and you actually think you have changed the amount of water in the tub. 
To me, the whole idea of changing the time is stupid and has way more negatives than positives, including but not limited to all the ones I've mentioned here. And if the question is asked which of the two options, standard time or daylight savings time, would I want it to be stuck on permanently? If we were to do away with this stupid practice of biannual clock twiddling, then my answer is simple and I've already indicated it. Standard time. And it goes beyond just the mountain of medical science backing that choice up. Daylight savings time really is a rebellion against nature, in my humble opinion. It goes counter to the circadian rhythms of human beings who evolved over countless millennia to be mostly diurnal animals. And most people have a pretty similar day-to-day schedule in terms of approximately when they get up, approximately when they go to work or school or whatever else they do, approximately when they come home, approximately when they eat dinner, approximately when they go to bed. Yeah, I know there's individual exceptions and some of you listening may be them, but to have a modern society, we do have to have some sort of standardization of time. And the question needs to be asked, should it be set in such a way that benefits the exceptions or the vast majority of regular people? When you get up in the morning and it's still pitch black outside, it is much, much harder to get up and get going than when you get up in the morning and there's already a little bit of sunshine. Likewise, when you're trying to go to bed at night and it's still freaking light out, it is a lot harder to fall asleep, biologically, than if you go to bed and it's already nice and dark. We're only now starting to scientifically understand all of the countless ramifications of sleep on human health. And it goes way deeper than most people would think when you actually delve into it. Good, high-quality sleep of sufficient quantity is vital to your physical and mental health. And all the evidence indicates that standard time on a year-round basis is the best option we have to harmonize your artificial schedule with your natural biological rhythms. Now, I think I've made my case against the practice of time changes in general and against daylight savings time in particular. As far as I'm concerned, if you like those things, you're on the same page as the Kaiser, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, and LBJ. So, I honestly don't know what to tell you. And the empirical evidence is pretty damning. DST, like so many other great ideas coming from the government, doesn't actually address the problem it was supposed to address, namely energy conservation, and may actually do the opposite, make energy consumption go up. And in the process, it creates a whole bunch of negative unintended side effects, including but not limited to what I've mentioned in this episode. So DST is a classic government program doesn't fix the problem it's supposed to fix, seems to actually make it worse, at least sometimes, and creates a whole bunch of new problems. So if you're struggling to get up in the morning and get at your day soon after springing forward, and if you're gulping down an extra five-hour energy just to get to work, struggling more than usual even for a Monday, here's what you need to think, or even say out loud. Thanks a fucking pant load. Woodrow Wilson. And now as we bring this to a close, I want to share one more brief passage 
from David Landis's book, Revolution in Time. This one from the book's conclusion. Because while the whole modern concept of time obviously has lots of upsides, and it allows human society and the economy to do things that it otherwise wouldn't be able to do, let's not pretend there aren't any costs or any downsides to being controlled by a stick moving mechanically in a circle, or by glowing digits changing on a screen. There's at least some degree of ambivalence, some negatives as well as benefits, from the overall modern artificial concept of time, so removed from the organic concept of time that was closely linked to the rhythms of nature in which most humans live with for most of our species' time on this earth. So, in the words of David Landis, quote, Are we pleased to know the time so precisely? Apparently not. It is not an accident that many alarm devices automatically sound twice, the second time after an interval, to make sure that the unwilling riser pays attention. For most of us, time is a deep habit, the price of modernization, productivity, potential affluence. The motto of the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors USA is Tempus Vitam Rigid. Time rules life. That it does, like it or not. The mechanical clock and watch may go, like the clepsydra and sundial before. Even quartz clocks and watches may shrink drastically in usefulness and importance. The timekeeper remains. End quote. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level. 
and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.